Next Sunday is Valentine's Day. So as we think about being in a series on marriage and family, just guys, I'm just telling you, don't be caught flat-footed. And let me bring you into another little secret here, is that ladies love surprises. Just a little surprise, be ready. So next Sunday's Valentine's Day. Well, as we get into the series and we start thinking about marriage and family, I, I got to say that as I reflect on this, I, I know that it's not easy. Marriage is really hard. I've been married almost 37 years, be 37 years in May, and uh, just a few days ago, I made three in one day rookie mistakes. I mean, rookie mistakes. My wife was having a bad day. I knew she was having a bad day. I come into the house, first rookie mistake, I don't say anything. Now men are often quiet. And here I don't say anything. Second rookie mistake. Knowing that she was not in a good place, I could have at least, even if I didn't know what to say, I could have hugged her. I didn't do that. My third rookie mistake, I walked away. I mean, all rookie mistakes, things that I should have known after all these years of marriage. Marriage is hard. It's hard to know what to say. It's hard to know when to say it. We hurt each other. We say things we don't mean to say. We carry attitudes at times that are just in the way of building a healthy relationship. But there's another element that makes it a little bit hard for me to talk about. And that is in this room, there's a lot of marital pain. People have walked through marriage, maybe, or through life, and their family of origin just unraveled. And they look back on all that pain. You know what they say about divorce? It's the death that keeps on dying. You feel that brokenness all of your life, and there's a lot of pain in this room because of that. There's a lot of pain in this room because people have experienced divorce. They have felt intimacy and transparency. They've been vulnerable. And then they have been trampled on through divorce. And it's very, very painful. And it's hard to work through these things. Then there's family structures that are stretched to the breaking point. There's confusion and hurt and anger. And all of this takes place as we're talking about a series like this. And I know that makes it really hard to speak into these issues because of the amount of disappointment. And there's another area I want to say. There's some people, they're living in the same house. They sleep in the same bedroom. They sleep in the same bed. And they're experiencing incredible aloneness. Not merely loneliness. I'm talking about aloneness even in marriage. So it makes it really hard to talk about. 
Then there's our culture. Our culture is just pounding us with messages. Messages about marriage. Messages about relationships. Messages about sexuality. Messages about gender. And we're trying to swim in the stream of all these things. And it makes it so, so hard to address. And hardly anyone in this room is untouched by the cultural stuff that's impacting marriages and families and individuals. And then, we're going to talk about it from a biblical standpoint. And then that opens a lot of questions. Well, Jesus, as we're going to look at it in just a few moments, he was asked a very difficult question on divorce. Jesus was being brought into a debate between two prominent rabbis. One was Rabbi Hillel, who pretty much said, you can leave your spouse for any reason at all. And then there was Rabbi Shammai, and he had a much stricter view. And they tried to bait Jesus, test him about divorce, but Jesus wouldn't go there. What Jesus wanted to do And what I think we need to do is go back to the very foundation of marriage. The permanency that God designed. Why it is so important. So if you have your Bible, would you look with me to Matthew 19? If you have a device, I think it's so important to have the Word of God in front of us so that you can just see what God wants us to see so that we can hear what God wants us to hear. And as we read, would you just ask God to speak to you? Would you just ask him to give you ears to hear, that you'll listen to what he says? Matthew 19, verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? For any and every reason? Verse 4, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. Father, we ask again that you would speak to us as we look at your word. Give us ears to hear. Help us to listen to what you have to say. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning I want to make two simple points. The first one is this, is that God designed marriage for us. He designed it for us. And then the second point I'm going to make is that we need to listen to God. We need to listen to God. But let's look a little bit closer at these verses, especially verses 4 to 6 here, when Jesus says, haven't you read, right? And he says that at the beginning, the Creator, the Creator made them male and female. It's this Creator, this, this One who made it all, who designed us as male and female to be in intimate relationships, deep intimate relationships. Now, I'm not suggesting that you cannot have deep, transparent, intimate relationships as singles. In fact, you should be having those. But what I am saying and what God is saying, what Jesus is bringing to the fore is that marriage relationships have a unique place in culture, in the world that God designed for a kind of transparency, a kind of intimacy that is not possible as singles because of the sexual relationship that God planned and what that means. But God designed us as people to communicate, to be in these relationships. And marriage is the most transparent. He made them male and female. And right there is a tripping point for our culture. And let me just say, as we read the passage, if we were to go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where this is labeled or where this is found, Jesus is going back to the creation story. And as so often happens, when they quote the Old Testament in the New Testament, they're picking up the context. And the context is that we are made in the image of God. Think about that. That God made us, unlike anything else in all of creation, that we are to reflect Him. Nothing like the marriage, marriage relationship shows God like the marriage relationship. We are all then made in his relationship, whether in, in his image, whether we are married or whether we are single. Now with this, we read male and female, but let me say it also goes to the place of masculinity and femininity. It's in a context of relationship. Once you get into sociology or connection of relationship, you are now dealing not merely with biology, but with psychology and sociology. And that starts bringing in a difference between masculinity and femininity. Between feminism and what God intended for women and masculinity and what God intended for men. He made us in His image, but He made us for Him. Now, Jesus doesn't go into all of Genesis 1 and 2, but what He does do, if you're familiar with the story, is this first part that He made a male and female that we just looked at is in Genesis 1. In Genesis chapter 2, Jesus says, 
that there is this man, Adam, and he says to him, it is not good for him to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Now that becomes very, very significant because when we read that in our modern ears, sometimes we start filling in what God never intended. When Moses wrote this and used the word helper, he used the Hebrew word ezer. He did not mean that the man was needing someone to be his slave, someone to be his servant, someone to be his doormat. That is nothing on Moses' mind. What God is saying by the word helper is someone that would come along and literally help the man, and the man would help the woman. There was to be, the next word is suitable. In fact, if we use the word ezer and you went through the Hebrew Bible, you would find that God is sometimes described as an ezer, as a helper. There's nothing demeaning about it. It's a description of how we as men need women and how women need men. So when it uses the word suitable, it's the idea of being opposite, that somehow masculinity complements femininity, and femininity complements masculinity. These things work together. But it's interesting, our culture tries to blend and blur all of this together so that we can say that we want women to look like men and men to look like women and so that there's no difference and that is not what God wanted in his design. God wanted these differences and these things to be appreciated. So whether you're married or whether you're single, there's this idea that masculinity complements femininity and vice versa. So we need to go. Then after this is laid out and Adam begins to see that he needs a helper, someone to complement him, someone that would be suitable, Jesus then says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. He says it twice, right? Because he's quoting Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And then he goes, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So this oneness where God now brings it into the marital relationship and the suitability is we can see it in the physical is that the man's body is opposite the female. He has parts that the woman's body needs and the woman's body has parts that the male needs, right? And these are opposite each other and that's where Jesus goes. But when we think about oneness, this one flesh relationship, he's not merely talking about the physical relationship. He's talking about the soulish relationship as well. The soulish, we prefer in our modern world because of science, things like psychology and sociology, is that the one flesh relationship also spills into our psyche and our relationship with our spouse. 
And that's what a one flesh relationship does. It even goes a little further. It goes into the spiritual area. And so what we read this, and Jesus is talking about a one flesh relationship in marriage, is that the husband and wife somehow come together in a mystery that reflects God in an amazing way and a demonstration of needing each other. And this is bringing about a oneness. Now, oneness is scary. Because when I use the word oneness, when we're talking about a one flesh relationship, we're talking about intimacy and transparency. We're talking about not just sharing opinions anymore. We do that with friends that we're not very close with. We might even share some of our ideas, right, of what we're thinking. But when I talk about it here in a one flesh relationship, and what makes it so scary, is that we're going deeper, and we're talking about the things that really matter in our souls. And we get to this place where we're afraid we're going to be rejected, where someone won't accept us. But the one flesh relationship that God intended is that it would be a safe place in marriage to share hopes and dreams, to share how you really feel about different things, how you can connect, what you're afraid of in connecting. So if I replay my rookie mistakes, I can begin to experience, well, what was I afraid of? Was I afraid of being intimate? Was I afraid of going to that hard spot? Was I afraid to go into communication and be vulnerable? Was I afraid that I couldn't fix it? You know how men love to fix things. What was it? And so what happens is in this one flesh relationship, there's this place where God wants us to be totally connected to each other, transparent and intimate. It makes sense that the spiritual battle the enemy rages against intimacy. He rages against one flesh relationship. It makes sense that the enemy is trying to stir up our culture and destroy everything that God said was good here. It makes sense that the enemy would start confusing gender things. It makes sense that the enemy would go after everything tied to oneness. Now, where do I get this idea of oneness? It's because in the very next verse, verse in Genesis 2.25, it says that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. They could be together and not be embarrassed, not be afraid, and be intimate with each other. Not merely physically intimate, but psychologically, socially, talking about the deepest things of life. So God designed marriage for us. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says that for this cause a man will leave his father and his mother. There's a uniting that needs to take place. Now, of course, as we do this, we talk about it in terms of our vows. We make these vows. This is the power of a promise, right? Now, we live in a day when everybody likes to be individualistic and people don't really want 
to use of traditional vows. I've done a lot of weddings over the years and people say, oh, I want to write my own vow. And I'm really fine with that. Except sometimes I warn them. And I'll say something like this and I'll give them an illustration. We live in a culture right here in an immediate area where there's a lot of farmland. And there's an old saying, don't take down a fence until you know why the fence was there. Don't take down the fence until you know why the fence was there. Because you don't know why that fence was put there, all kinds of things happen. Well, when we start dismantling traditional vows, we're not really thinking through why the original pieces were put in the vow. So as we look at this vow, I just did the male side of it or the groom side of it. It says, to be my wife, to have and to hold. Do you know what those words mean? To have and to hold? It means I'm going to receive you just the way you are. I'm receiving you and I'm not going to try to change you and mold you and shape you. And then when it says to hold, it's the idea not merely that I'm going to receive you, but I'm going to protect you. And I'm going to guard you. I'm going to care for you. Now when the wife says it, notice it goes the same way. To have and to hold. Or when the bride says it, I'm going to receive you and I'm going to protect you and I'm going to guard you. And then look what it says from this day forward. And then it says, for better, for worse. For better, for worse. I'm going to accept you. I'm going to receive you. And I know that I'm going to discover some things about you that are not going to be pleasant. Because isn't that what transparency does? So you go through your dating time, many things coming together, but you, 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 you really don't know each other. I'm still learning things about my wife after 30-some years of marriage. For better, for worse. Kathy accepts me for better, for worse. This was a promise we made for each other, to each other. But not only that, it says for richer or poor. I know when we're young and we're ambitious and we're dreaming and we got hopes and we think there's going to be all this resourcing. But sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes God has another plan. The man who was the best man in my wedding had two children that were very, very sick. Required all of their finances. All their dreams, all their hopes were put away. For richer, for poor. Then he goes on and says, in sickness and in health, you never know what life's going to bring. You never know what's going to happen. Many of you know my mother-in-law passed away at the beginning of January after a 16-year battle with dementia. But her husband stayed with her as long as he possibly could, taking care of her, defending her, protecting her, Sickness and in health. And then to love and to cherish. To love and to cherish that the relationship is so deep, so intimate, so meaningful that you're going to cherish it. You're going to guard it. And notice it goes on and says, until separated by death. And these vows were written in a time when, when we looked at life and that we needed each other. 
and to stay with each other through life. Well, then we establish a marriage covenant. Now, a marriage covenant is way different than a contract. A marriage covenant is a sacred vow before God, between a man and a woman. And those words trip people in our culture. But it's a promise. A contract, a legal contract, is a a more modern invention. Two people enter a contract, and they, they draw up the stipulations. You do this, I do this. If you fail to do this, it breaks a contract. And often in contracts, the actual breaking of it, there's not a moral part to it. But in a covenant... Because it's before God and you're making this promise before God and with God, there's a moral component. Now, as you'll see in the bottom of the slide, let me just parenthetically say we're doing some texting at the end of the service. If you want to text a question, that number is there so you can text to that. So this covenant relationship is a promise. And it's this that God is using to build the marriage. And so as I thought about all of this in terms of a picture, I thought of this this idea that the covenant is the bedrock of the relationship. It's the the bedrock. It's where we get before God and we say, God, I am committing my life to this person. I'm making promises to have and to hold. And then I use the idea of a bridge because God intended marriage that we needed each other, a helper, when life is hard. And life is hard. I need a helper in raising children. I need a helper when you lose a job. I need a helper when things start unraveling in the family. I need a helper. And the marriage is designed to freight, to carry across all the hardships of life. What God envisioned for us, and that it would be a picture of our relationship with Him. But something's happened. There's a threat. There's a threat that has never hit the history of the world before. The self. Now, what I don't mean when I use the word self. I don't mean identity. I don't mean a confusion between whether I'm Tom or Joe Biden, right? I'm not talking about that. I'm not even talking about selfishness, self-centeredness, or self-gratification. Those are acts of sin. When I talk about self, I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about can best be described in three questions. And this is what has never happened in the history of the world. A convergence of these three questions. The first question, do I have a purpose? Oh, people have always asked that question. But never before in the history of the world, not just this question, you're going to have to take all three, have we tried to answer it from the place of self. 
I'll decide if I have a purpose. I'll decide what my goal in life is. I will... Oh, you're not going to decide what my purpose is. You're not going to decide if I have a goal. I'm not going to let anyone decide anything about my life except for me. Second question. What will make me happy? It's not the question alone. We've always asked the question, what is a good life? What is flourishing? Philosophers have asked that all the time. But never before, when we start talking about purpose and link it with happiness, have we answered, I'll decide what makes me happy. If I am a man, biologically, and I want to be a woman, I'll decide that. Not you. And if I want to change my mind tomorrow... I'll change it. It's me that decides that, not you. And definitely not God. The self has been elevated to a place like never before. The third question, third question. We get into it. Not only purpose, not only what is flourishing, but love. I'm going to choose what I want to love. And it starts with everything about me. All of this has converged like never before in the history of the world. simple book where some of this is written about is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. All of this has converged. And you're asking yourself, well, well, how is that different? How is that different than what God intended? What's happened as we think about these things is that the self is crushing marriage because marriage, as we've already talked about, is about God, who's outside of the self. God determines purpose. So if I ask, what is the purpose of life? Christians have answered it the same way for 2,000 years. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the purpose. I don't get to decide that. God made you and me in His image so that we could glorify Him, so that we could know Him, so we could experience Him, so we could adore Him and walk in His truth. Not I get to decide purpose. Very, very different than ever before in the history of the world. God in our culture has been pushed to the fringes where He just does not matter. When it comes to flourishing, God cared very much about flourishing. That's how he organized culture. He said that the marriage, the family was going to be foundational to a flourishing culture. It was going to be the marriage where we would flourish in transparency and intimacy and honesty. Marriage is very, very other-centered. The good life is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. Notice how 
outward oriented he is. That's what marriage is. Marriage is caring more about another person than self. Marriage is caring more about your kids than self. You think of the Tower of Babel. Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. It says, let us build a tower and make a name for us. We would write it this way. Let us make a tower and make a name for me. But everything about life and flourishing and purpose is to be outward focused, other-centered, loving and caring for other people. That's why there's so much pain in the world. We, we, we're all in it. And by the way, when I say self, I'm not saying I'm escaping it. I'm not escaping it at all. No one escapes this. No one. Every time I go into a store and I got 15 choices, what I'm saying is I'm king. Am I going to have this kind of toothpaste or this kind? I choose. You don't choose. See how we all swim in the same stream. When it comes to love, love is so radically other-centered. So now, let me bring us to the second point here. As we think about marriage, we need to listen to God. Pastor Chris, our family pastor, uses a phrase Listen to God, love one another, and lead into mission. We're going to talk about how this is lived out so that we can build families. But this morning as I close with listening to God before we go to texting, we need to listen to God, and you've got a choice to make. Is God's paradigm, is God's picture, is God's plan for men and women, male and female, masculinity and femininity, marriage. Are you going to listen to God or listen to the culture? Are you going to listen to God or are you going to listen to what society is saying? Are you going to listen to God and His Word or are you going to listen to yourself as you're being shaped by the culture? But there's another aspect of listening to God. And this is a very important part. What if, when my wife was having a bad day, I stopped and said, God, I want to listen to you. You know what I should do right now. I don't know what to do, God. I'm going to listen to you. Can you imagine how our marriages would change? If we took a moment to listen to God, God's not going to abandon you. He told us He left the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who's going to guide us and lead us into truth. He's going to direct our steps. So what if I would have stopped and said, God, I need to listen to you about how to love my wife right now. There's lots of things He could have done. I don't know which He would have done. I didn't do it. But what if He would have nudged me nudged me to say, give your wife a hug right now? What if he would have nudged me to say, love one another, like the one another passages, and respect her and 
hey, could, could we go sit on the couch and talk for a moment? I want to hear what's going on. The Holy Spirit would guide us. We need to listen to God. We need wisdom. Sometimes we take something simple. The Bible tells us to raise up our children, right, in the way they should go. Things get really complicated. We've got to say, listen to God. God, what do you want me to do with my son in this situation? You know what it says in James chapter 1, verse 5? It says, if anyone lacks wisdom, God will give them wisdom. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will give you wisdom? Listen to God. He will direct our steps. He will lead us into the way we need to go. God designed marriage for us, and we need to listen to God. Well, I want to take a few moments for some texting. As we think about this idea of self and who I am, we, we constantly come to this place, I'm going to define it, and are we going to let God, are we going to let God speak into our lives? So I'm going to invite CJ to come up and help with the texting. CJ, come on up. If we could welcome CJ up. And uh, you can continue to text while we, we start this. We'll just take a few questions, see where we go with this. Cool. Um, first question, I actually really want to address whoever sent this question, because I think it's really good. Uh, real quick, I love the way that you worded this question, because um, I think that whoever it is, I don't know who you are, but um, you really want to seek God's will and not just like your own agenda. I just feel that in the text, so whatever. Uh, I just thought that was really cool. I'll read it, and it'll make more sense. I am divorced and in a new relationship. Is marriage the only goal of God? Is it a sin not to want to get married? And so before you answer it, the reason I said that is because Again, you're asking, like, I want to glorify God. I, I, if this is his will, like, I want to know the answer. I don't just want to have my own agenda that I'm just pushing on to God. And so I think that's really cool. Anyway, uh, is, is marriage the only goal of God in a relationship between man and woman? Or um, is it a sin to not to want to get married? Good question. Uh, I know we have a number of singles here. And uh, being a single is not a second-class place. There's a great place in the kingdom of God for marriage and for singleness. And we as a church need to be very, very sensitive to the singles amongst us. Sometimes they come into church, they don't know where to sit, they don't have anyone to sit with, they feel alone or isolated. Let me say, let's be a church that when you see that, at least invite them. Hey, would you like to sit with me? Would you like, maybe they don't because they're fine, but not everybody feels that way. Uh, so I want to make clear that no, marriage is not the only goal, nor should it be always the pursued goal. It's just God's plan uh, for most of us. Now, if you're divorced and you're with someone, I think it's the same kind of question that comes up with uh, people that, whether you've been divorced or not, is we have these things are called sexual desires. And I think that what's happened in our culture is there's just a, a collapse of sexual purity. So whether you're married, you should be sexually pure, that is, with your wife or your husband only. And if you're single, you need to be sexually pure. And so I think that there are sometimes challenges there, just on a very practical level, 
that God intended for some of those sexual desires to be met in marriage. But if you're navigating that and your partner's navigating that and there's other issues of purity that need to be there, uh, I think it's great. I think it's fine. No, I don't think you have to get married. So I don't know if yeah. you have something you'd like to add. Or no, I was just going to say, I mean, if you, if you keep reading Matthew 19, when we were reading earlier, Jesus addresses the disciples who, yep. who asked him a question. Is it, it's kind of funny. I think this is a hilarious moment in the disciples. They're like, I heard what you said. So isn't it better not just to get married? They're like, that sounds like a lot of work. So maybe we just don't get married. And he actually goes on to say, like, if someone can do that and remain pure and all those things, then he, he encourages them yep. because it frees them up to serve the Lord. And so, and the um, Apostle Paul did the same yep. thing in 1 Corinthians 7, talked about the, the opportunities that he had as mm-hmm. a single that he didn't have as a married person. Yeah. So let me say, if you're single, flourish in your singleness yeah. until God calls you the other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a calling, whether you're single or married, and I yeah. think we should be pursuing God in those things. Yeah. Next question, uh, how are we to respond to the legalization of homosexual marriage? I'm giving you good ones, just, you know. Uh, this is very, very important for Fox Valley Church. We need to love and love all people well. And so we all probably, I know I have friends that have same-sex attraction and uh, some have gone the path of marriage, and some have gone the path of celibacy, and we're called to love people. Mm-hmm. The reason why Matthew 19 is such an important passage is that we need to know God's plan and truth. And we have to figure out how to balance speaking truth and love together. So we want to love people well, but we never love people well if we don't speak truth to people. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes it's not the, we're not the ones that are supposed to be speaking the truth. Someone else is, but we need to know the truth. So I think it's very, very unfortunate what's happened in our country uh, with the legalization, uh, the expansion of marriage. This is just going to continue to grow. It's going to move in directions that will be uncontrollable. Uh, because of, remember what I said, the enemy is going after everything oneness. The male, female, man, woman. So uh, I think we need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray. This is not just happening in our country, but globally. Uh, but we need to know the truth. But we need to be identified as people that love people, that we're mm-hmm. not condemning people. Uh, but we don't have to agree with them. Now, because... We live in a culture that if you disagree, they see that as condemnation. We got to remember that's their problem, not always our problem. As long as we're loving people, we got to figure out how to love people well. Mm-hmm. We got to figure out dis- how to listen. And disagree to well. And disagree well. Yeah. We do not disagree well. Mm-hmm. And we got to learn how to do that. And uh, I think it's really, really important. Uh, to be able to speak yeah. what the Bible says. Yeah. So I would just add one thing too. Yeah. I think it's you know, you brought up the the idea of purity and uh, in, in marriage. I think there's an idea of purity in our life, right? And I know most of the people that I interact with that maybe are struggling with homosexuality, they they know enough scripture to be. I'm going to call it a little dangerous, right? And so um, 
you know, it's hard to sit there and, and, and hear when someone calls out hypocrisy and calls out like, well, you're okay with this sin, but not that one. And so for what it's worth, I think what I'm trying to say is this, there's this idea of holistic purity in our lives as believers, right? Is that it helps us to love people, to, 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 to live this out better whenever we're being consistent mm-hmm. with the convictions that God puts on our hearts, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of being flippant and saying, okay, I'm really going to hold the line here, but I'm going to toe the line over here. It, it doesn't look good. It's kind of egg on our face and, right. you know, scripture calls it. And, and can we get a little more... Uh, honest and practical. You'll never hear me speak up here about homosexual sin, transgender sin in an isolated case. Mm -hmm. Sexual sin in marriage is sexual sin. Homosexual sexual sin is sexual sin. So we, we can't walk around with a bunch of hypocrisy just like CJ said. We also need to recognize we've trampled on marriage. Mm -hmm. And let's push even further and be honest, with the continued growth of pornography, is that not sexual sin? Is that not heterosexuals often in pornography? I know there's homosexual sin as well, uh, pornography. But let's just call a spade a spade. Mm-hmm. Sexual sin is sexual sin. And God calls us to have a heart of purity in the sexual area. And way too many Christians are feasting on movies that are inappropriate, filled with sexual sin, celebrating it, entertained by it as it destroys our soul, and then feasting on just flat-out pornography. And that's just in the heterosexual area. So let's not point out someone else's sin until Mm -hmm. we look at the sin in our own hearts. Mm -hmm. And I have the same battle as a heterosexual male. Mm -hmm. I've got to keep my eyes from my one wife. In Ephesians, uh, when it comes to being an elder or pastor, it says you need to be a one-woman man. That's how the Greek translates, a one-woman man. That means very simply, I need to have my heart and my eyes and my mind for one woman. Mm -hmm. When I fail to do that, I'm slipping into a sexual compromise. And I need to repent of that. No differently than my friends that are homosexual, male and female homosexuals, that are slipping into sexual Mm -hmm. sin. So let's not point the finger too quickly here. Mm -hmm. Let's be honest, let's be loving, and let's be fair about sexual sin. Mm-hmm. So. One more? Sure. Okay. Um, I think this is good. This is a really, there, there's kind of a, I'll just read it. <laughs> it presents a scenario and then a question at the end. Uh, and I think this is a really good way to end. So a Christian man cheats on his Christian wife. The man divorces his wife and then marries the person he committed adultery with, who is also a Christian. That's the scenario. Can they glorify God in their marriage together, even though it was founded on adultery? And so that's the question. Yes, I'll let you Uh, take this one. I love Fox Valley Church. (laughs) And I always want to, as best as we can, be a church that deals honestly with life. And this is life today in the 21st century. Uh, Yes, you can glorify God. But you'll glorify God also by being honest about your previous failure. Mm -hmm. 
I think too often, and this is what's destroying a lot of families today, is they're hiding stuff. They're putting it under the rug instead of saying, I was wrong when I divorced your mom. I was wrong when I walked away from your dad. But that said, Jesus Christ is amazing. These mm-hmm. songs we sing are true. God changes our hearts. He changes our lives. He can change the trajectory. But he'll never do that. We'll never get to glorifying God until we're totally honest. And I think there's a lot of lying and hypocrisy because we're just not honest about our past. Mm -hmm. We're not honest about our own failures. And I love the new generation coming up. They want authenticity. They want genuineness. They want truth. And when we sit there and act like, oh, I had my life together. I never have sexual sin. I've never made a mistake. This generation is saying, if that's the God you're following, I don't want anything to do with it. Mm. So we do need to be honest. But I do want you to know God is a redeeming God. He's a restoring God. And he can be glorified in new marriages. You need to believe that. But we do need this other piece. Let's not act like, We don't have failures and mistakes made. Always present the ideal. And then, let me say it this way, we always want to get as close to the ideal as we can. Mm -hmm. But we have to know what the ideal is. So Jesus, in Matthew 19, was giving the permanence, the plan of marriage. That's why what CJ said was so good. The disciples said, wow, if God wants that, marriage is too hard. It's better not to be married. So let's know the ideal. Let's pursue the ideal in a fallen, broken, messed up world as best as we can. Always truth and love. And we're not being truthful when we walk out on our partners and leave our kids abandoned and they don't have anyone to process the brokenness of their own souls. They need that. And as parents, and your kids get older, and they start asking about different things about your life, let's not hide. There's an appropriate level of transparency, of course, but let's not act like we don't have sin and sexual sin. Mm -hmm. Let's not pretend we need a Savior. If you're all that, and you're perfect in your sexual life, you probably don't need a Savior. But I'll tell you, for me, I need a Savior. I need a Savior that can carry everything, even the stuff you don't see. Because it says that he's going to judge the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. He sees it all. And that's where we want to walk as a church, as best as we can. We'll never be perfect, but as a church, we want to be honest, transparent. So thank you for those hard questions. Uh, Feel free to text in more. We'll figure out how to get some of this Uh, information out uh, as we go forward. We've gone a little long. Uh, Let me just pray, pray a blessing over you. Father, I just want to pray as we close this morning. There's people here that are hurt. They're wondering, they're confused. Would you meet them right where they are? That you're a, a personal God. You love them. You adore them. Help them to hear that, God. And now, God, as we leave, I just ask your blessing on everyone here. Give them a good day. In Jesus' name, amen.